This is One Universe at a Time. I'm Brian Coberline. Our bodies are made out of cells, and those cells have to move around and interact, and that means they're governed by the laws of physics, which brings the idea of integrating biology and physics into biophysics. On today's show, we have Dr. Momita Das, Assistant Professor of Physics at the Rochester Institute of Technology, and she's going to tell us about biophysics. Brian, you can actually call me Mo, I think. Okay, short for Momita? Well, uh, not really exactly for that. It's Mo from Momentum, because when I was doing a postdoc at UCLA, one of my mentors named me Big Mo because, you know, after Big Momentum, because he thought I was always very fast, like fast cells, right, and also right. because I am, as you can see, very big. Yes, And then the yes. Mo part sort of stuck. So yep. just call me Mo. For the listeners, no. <laughs> She's small and energetic. <laughs> so biophysics, that's that's your area of research. It's one of those interesting things because we think of physics. We know physics is about atoms and molecules mm-hmm. and things like that. And then you have uh, biology, which is about living things. And you work in an area that's an integration of both. Yes. So biophysics sort of integrates our knowledge of our disciplinary knowledge of biology and physics to then study how do physical properties of, you know, biological matter. And you can think of biological matter along you know the whole hierarchy. So you start with organism, then you have organs, then you have tissues, then you have cells, then you have genes and so on. Mm-hmm. So throughout this hierarchy of biological matter, you can actually you know, sort of understand, try to understand how do physical, structural, and, you know, information theoretic properties at these different levels, how do they control or govern function of these biological systems at different levels, right? right. So that's so, what I would, I'm trying, yeah. like, I'm one of the many, many people who are trying to do this. So you're more interested in the kind of the mechanics of the biology rather than the chemistry of the biology? I am, yeah. So so the thing is, you know, in order to understand what's going on in biological systems, like you pointed out, obviously you would have to integrate our knowledge of their physical properties, our knowledge of their chemical properties. What I'm trying to do is to see how far can you push the physics to understand how cells behave, right? Because many of the grand challenges that exist, you know, in our uh science and technology these days, in order to solve these unsolved problems or challenges, you really need to tackle them in sort of a more interdisciplinary way. You have to bring together pictures. Cross lines. Yeah, people from, you know, biology, physics, math, engineering, and have them work together. Right. Now, you're in the physics department. Yes. And and you could have easily have been in a biology department. In fact, I have had an interesting journey. So my PhD is in condensed matter physics, and I was in a physics department. Uh Then uh, this was in India at the Indian Institute of Science, Bangalore. Then I did a postdoc at Harvard University in engineering and applied math. (laughs) Then I did another postdoc at UCLA in chemistry and biochemistry, Department of <laughs> Chemistry and Biochemistry, and now I'm a professor, you know, in a physics department again. Right. So, so I Mark, have had an interdisciplinary journey. So you're kind of in the physics because you have a physics PhD, yes. but all of your postdoc has been in engineering and chemistry Math and, and biology. and chemistry, yes, okay. yes. Okay. So uh, I know one of the things you wanted to talk about is the importance of this kind of interdisciplinary work. Mm-hmm. You know, why we traditionally see things as biology is the biology department and physics is a physics department. And I know in my own field in astrophysics, Mm -hmm. we have the same type of thing. A lot of the colleagues that I have that work in astrophysics are actually in the mathematics department because they do computational work. And you have the same thing with physics and biology. What makes that different than, well, I'm a physicist who works on biological topics? So I guess the thing is, you know, 
for some problems, you can tackle them, you can solve them using, you know, discipline-based knowledge. But at their core, you know, problems or processes do not really care about distinctions between disciplines, right? Mm -hmm. Nature does not care whether, you know, whether you need physics or biology to describe it. You might sometimes be able to describe nature using just physics or using just biology, but right. oftentimes you need to basically integrate knowledge from these different disciplines to describe what's happening right. in nature. At no point does nature say, the human must decide what I am before I know what to do. Right. Discipline-based knowledge is important because that gives you a good foundation from where to start. Right. But often, you know, you need to cross these boundaries to solve, you know, the outstanding problems that are out there. Right. And you think that's going to be more vitally important, the idea of... That, that is very that important. integrative nature yes. of scientific research. Yes. So I would central. not even call it cross-disciplinary. I want it to be more of an integrative process, right? And right. that's one of my goals as a scientist, as, as an educator, to train the next generation of, you know, scientists who are experts in both physics and biology and, you know, who can basically are good at and confident at integrating their knowledge of these two disciplines. Right. And that, that provides a new perspective then. That we Instead of coming from it as a physicist or coming from it as a biologist, a right. biophysicist mm -hmm. has, has a completely different view sure. of integrating yeah, yeah. those. So okay. that's what you know, I, I really, really am excited about and something I definitely want to contribute to. Right. Do you think that's true in general, that kind of like the big problems in science are, are kind of interdisciplinary? Many big problems are. Another problem that's, I would say, very interdis interdisciplinary is, you know, problems at the nanoscale, right? If you think mm -hmm. of carbon nanotubes or graphene, again, there you have to bring together chemists and physicists and engineers. Right. Material sort of, science material is a very science integrative. Material science is a very interdisciplinary. Uh, yeah. Astrophysics, yeah. material yes. science, biophysics. Yeah. There seems like there's a lot of them that just kind of integrate those together. Right. And it's, it's an interesting thing because of our disciplines that we started with, uh, come from the kind of historical trends mm -hmm. of how they were done. Biology was about kind of taxonomy originally, mm -hmm. and then got into chemistry mm -hmm. and genetics and mm -hmm. things as we've evolved. Do you think that we're going to kind of change the way universities work and that we're going to have a biophysics department instead of a physics department? So actually, many universities have a biophysics department. If not a biophysics department, many universities actually have a biophysics program, mm -hmm. which sort of integrates, you know, people from again, several different departments at the university. So at RIT also, we are trying to bring together a BioX program, yeah. which will have people from, again, physics, mathematical sciences, bioengineering, microsystems engineering, and so on. So in terms of training the next generation, right, it's not just students who will do biophysics, even students who are going to become doctors, mm -hmm. you know, students who will take the, you know, medical admission test. Right. Even for them, often, it's very important to know at least the basic physics of cells and tissues, you know. Right. So another point, like another thing that's becoming more and more important is now to have introductory physics courses for would-be medical students, mm -hmm. right? So various campuses have come up with good introductory physics courses for medical students. And it's, it's essentially the physics courses that we teach, but then have some other topics, right? Let's say, you know, talk about fluctuations in physics or random walks in physics a little bit mm -hmm. or you know or talk about a little bit soft materials like cells and tissues so that students have at least some basic understanding of the physical properties of biological systems even though they're not going to become biophysicists in future they will most likely become surgeons or you know 
right. or neuroscientist or something like that. Right. Do you think that should apply more in general? I mean, I know in my own training as a physicist, I took math courses, I took chemistry, atomic physics. I didn't really do much biology. So I think this is a new trend. It's It was not there when we did our PhDs, when right. you did your PhD or I did our my PhD. But, you know, it's becoming more and more important. So, like, RIT is thinking of something like this. University of Maryland College Park already has a course like this. And it's been a huge success there. Right. So, so more of a broader foundation for undergraduate students right. and then a specialization, somewhat like what we do in graduate school, but right. then doing right. that as an undergraduate. This is One Universe at a Time. We're talking to Mo Das about biophysics. So, you know, talking about the whole interdisciplinary thing, one of the things that struck me was how when we were growing up, or at least, you know, for me in the States, there was an emphasis to say we cannot just train scientists to just do science. Mm-hmm. And so there was this idea of a liberal arts education mm-hmm. that I had to have exposure to literature and history and writing because that's important for a, a well-rounded person. Right. And it sounds like what you're saying is that even as a scientist, a well-rounded scientist is important. That, that even though if I may specialize in physics, I really do need an exposure in a wider area of at least basic science than, than a narrow area. Yes, I would actually totally agree with that. And I would even say that, you know, at, at the undergraduate level, so we are not really talking about specialists who are going into academia. Right. At the undergraduate level, which is what basic science education is about, you know, uh, I think it's not just scientists or physicists who should know physics or biologists who should know biology. It's important that physicists know some biology, doctors know some basic physics, mm-hmm. and other people like people who are going to decide, you know, public policy or even going to become, you know, president or vice president or secretary of state, that right. even these people know some basic science, some basic physics, basic biology. I think this is very important. This is actually very essential for the future of our country and our planet, I right, would say. Right, right. And we're seeing this, I mean, uh, I think the Republican candidate, Ben Carson, is a neuroscientist, so very smart guy, very, very well-respected brain surgeon, and yet has come out as saying, you know, he doesn't believe in evolution. And on the one side, you're thinking, how can you be a brain surgeon and not understand basic biology? On the other hand, people have pointed out, well, if you're just working on brains, it's a mechanics thing. It's, it's not something that biology is part of that training. And it sounds like you're saying that really should be part of the training. It's important to have focused education once you become very specialized, once you go into you know higher education. But at mm-hmm. the beginning, I think it's important that everybody has a broad, well-rounded education. Right. And that seems to be quite a challenge because I know one of the pushbacks from that is that, well, we've got all of this stuff that we have to train these people. If we're going to have a bachelor's degree in biology or physics, you know, we've got centuries of work right. that have to be crammed into these kids' heads. Right. We don't have time to worry about literature or other sciences. And and so how how do you think you balance that? Do you think like the first year you just say, we're going to have everybody do I basic think so, science? Some of the introductory, you know, physics or introductory biology or chemistry, we can probably balance out that, use some of the more newer topics, you know, incorporate some of our newer discoveries or knowledge of those subjects and then maybe leave out or at least, you know, shorten some of the more older. So less of the history stuff and just kind of jump right into the more modern science. Right, right. Because we do tend to do the more historical perspective anyway. So that's one way. There are are different ways and different ways work at different places, right? The other way is through having students work on projects during uh, summer and maybe also encourage students to not just work within their own disciplines, work with faculty within their own disciplines, but encourage students to sort of work with faculty 
maybe just outside their discipline. You know, right. Like, have a wide variety. Yeah. So things. have a biochemistry student maybe work with a physicist during summer. Have a physics student maybe work in a material science you know department during summer and things like that. Right. Because it does give you a very different perspective. Everyone right. coming from a different background right. has a different approach to how they solve problems. And it the broadens their you know their perspective. Right. So I wanted to talk about your specific research. What mm-hmm. is it that you're currently working on? So currently I'm working on basically looking at physics of cells and tissues. And more specifically, what I'm trying to understand is how do physical properties of cells and tissues influence their function and their fate? And, you know, how is physical information, let's say, that's sensed by cells from their surroundings, how is this physical uh, information then propagated, you know, at higher and higher levels of hierarchy, like, you know, from cells to tissues, tissues to organs, and so on. Right. And what is the final, what are the consequences of that? And that's that's an interesting thing, because on, on kind of on the cell level, we don't really necessarily think of them as sensing their environment. I think, you know, we have eyes and ears. Cells are actually extremely sensitive. So, for example, let's say when you have an infection, the way your body deals with the infection is that your white blood cells have to get to the site of the infection. And then, you know, if it's bacteria, then kill the bacteria or, you know, whatever it is, it has to deal with it, right? So, cells are continuously sensing their physical environment, physical and chemical, but I focus on physics. So, they're sensing their physical environment continuously for different types of cues and then they're responding to it in you know several different ways so if there is a bacteria the white blood cells will get close to it chase it kill it and you know what do what needs to be done right right right. so and on the scale of cells this is almost like you know having an infection in st louis and people from new york have to now go to st louis to fight the battle well there may be some cells that are in the vicinity it depends Right. right okay so yeah, so cells, cells are actually, and I call them touchy-feely because they're you know, touchy-feely <laughs> because they are very mechanosensitive. So in some ways, so yeah. So, so mechanosensitive that means the pressure and they can and yeah they can sense their mechanical surroundings. No, the like the stiffness of their surroundings. Oh, okay. Different. Yeah, yeah. So in fact, there have been experiments in University of Pennsylvania about uh, nine years ago now, where they took stem cells, uh, pluripotent stem cells. So these are stem cells that have not yet decided what they will become in future. Right, they could do a whole they bunch of They can do anything. Things. They can become right. anything, right? So they take this pluripotent stem cells and they put them on, you know, like surroundings of different of different stiffnesses. So the okay. same stem cell, they can take the stem cell and put it on a substrate which is very soft or put it on a substrate which is very stiff. And the really intriguing, very intriguing thing that they found was that when you take the stem cell and put it in a very soft substrate, it goes on to become a nerve cell. So it wants to take on the stiffness of the soft surrounding and become a nerve cell. And the same stem cell, when you put it on a very hard substrate, it becomes a bone cell, which is very hard. So again, cells can sense the physical stiffness of their surroundings, and then that decides their fate. So that's that's one of the really not like open, challenging questions in you know cell biophysics right now so so basically they're these substrates don't have like a chemical signal or anything no no it's everything is same it's pure physics yes and so by pure physics soft soft services make them nerve cells and hard services make Make them them bone bone cells bone cells yes and in in the intermediate they can become muscle cells right this this has important consequences for tissue engineering you know yeah this just i i'm just kind of sitting here kind of in shock just because 
you know, my basic understanding of, of biology was that, well, it's all chemical signaling, that, that when there's the chemicals get to the right spot, then then they know, oh, I need to be a nerve cell, all right? And you're saying, no, I'm physically around nerves. I better start acting like a nerve. Yeah, so it's very, their physics is very important. <laughs> physics is very important for what I was, I'm talk, telling you about. And then my own research, which has to do with, you know, uh, physics of cancer cells or cells okay. as they become more and more cancerous. So that's one thing I work on. The other thing is physics of... Uh, cart- cartilage tissue in our knees and joints, okay. our elbows. So yeah. again, their physics is very, very important. It's actually the physical environment that yes, actually changes yes, them. Yes. Is that more important than the chemistry, or am I? So essentially, it's like you have an elephant, and you know you have the trunk of the elephant, and the ear, right. and the mouth, and every part is important, right? But right. physics is not something that you can completely leave out, right? right. For example, you can ask, you can say that well, the war on cancer has been, you know, it was declared how many year, how many decades ago, ago yeah, now? I like, think every week, I think <laughs> like four or five decades ago, right? Right. But you know. We have really not made as much progress as was intended on, you know, addressing, you know, several questions associated with cancer. And I think one of the reasons is because we have been looking sort of in a very focused disciplinary way. And which is why, you know, now like the National Institutes of Health, the NSF, the National Cancer Institute, they're bringing together people from different disciplines and asking them to brainstorm together, talk together to address these issues. Right, because it seems like... Everything we've kind of been taught at a basic level is it's all biochemistry. That's what biology is. Living things are biochemical organisms. And you're saying, no, they're biophysical organisms. So they are both biochemical and biophysical. But I'm saying you can't ignore the biophysics. You ignore the biophysics at your own peril. That's what I'm saying. And that's part of the reason why we have so much of a challenge to this. Yes, yes. So how does this then relate to the cancer cells that that So the thing is, uh, so with cancer cells, when cells become cancerous, they undergo a transition which often people call the epithelial to mesenchymal transition. And after this transition takes place, you know, the physical stiffness of cancer cells change, how cancer cells, how different cells stick to each other change, how fast cells can move change. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these things change, you know, because of, you know, once cells become cancerous. So in fact, I should go one step back and say that, so... When people get cancer, what kills them is not that they have a tumor in their body. What kills them is that these cancer cells can metastasize and go to other parts of the body and start a new tumor. They take a troop, they go to a different layer and set down a colony. Because if you had tumor at just one part of your body, you can do surgery, get rid of the tumor, and you're fine. Right. But because your cancer cells, because cancer cells can metastasize, you know, just removing a tumor doesn't help, especially if the cancer has spread, right? Right. So then what we need to do is understand the basis of metastasis. And, you right. know, again, there are not just biochemical processes, there are also physical processes that are pretty tied together with, you know, biochemical changes. They have to break apart, they have to travel along right. a long distance, and they right. have to find a new place to... to And experimentalists in the last decade have been looking at physical properties of single cancer cells, groups of cancer cells, and they're finding a lot of differences in their physical properties and the physical properties of cells that are completely healthy and normal, right? Right. So like I told you, cancer cells are more squishy, they can deform more easily, and this plays an important role in metastasis because you can imagine when they're moving through narrow constrictions, being more squishy and deformable actually helps them to get from point A to point B more easily, more quickly, right? And also, most healthy cells like to stick to each other, but cancer cells don't have the stickiness. And once again, 
that plays an important role in you know how they move from one part of the body to other parts of the body so there are dif- differences like this in physical properties of cancer cells and healthy cells and one of my main research topics that's very close to my heart is looking at how do these differences in physical properties between cancer cells and healthy cells what is the the role of you know that like these kind of differences in you know how cancer cells metastasize Right. So the physics of cancer cells, how does that make them more mobile? Right, right. 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 And it's also the kind of thing where, um, you know, we talk about here's a cancer discovery in a Petri dish. Right. And you're looking at kind of a chemical reaction of a specific right. cell. It's like we can kill cancer cells in a Petri dish really easily, but that doesn't necessarily help us. So the thing is, there are two parts to it, right? There are ways in which it helps us and ways in which it doesn't help us. Okay. So first I will tell you why we do these experiments in a petri dish, right? So when you're looking at properties, let's say physical, biochemical, whatever, of cells or inside cells, you know, in an organ, like within Mm -hmm. a living organism, it's a very complex, very dynamic, very, you know, evolving kind of environment. Right. It's very difficult to study anything, biochemistry or physics, you know, in you know, in a situation like in that. In that whole thing. It's and like trying to repair a plane while it's flying. Right. <laughs> and you can't often change any properties, change any characteristic in a controlled manner. So what experimentalists do to, you know, address this is often they will take purified extracts from the cells or the tissues and then reconstitute the system that they want to study, let's say in a Petri dish, mm-hmm. and then sort of study the properties of that reconstituted system in a more controlled manner. The way this helps is, you know, A, you can control different biophysical properties. Right. You can adjust the you environment, can adjust them, basically. And you can also get a more quantitative understanding, not just qualitative, but you can get a more quantitative understanding of how, if you tune something, how does some other property change, etc. Right. Et because you can control the variables. Right. That means you can see how those variables affect the growth or, or right. sustainability right. of the cancer right. cells. And you can put it under a microscope, right? So it's it's easier to study you can get better characterized studies from that right the problem like you said is that you know and which ties on ties to the first part is these are very complex systems every part talks to every other part so you might for example be able to kill cancer in a petri dish under controlled conditions without any consequences but when you do this inside the body of an organism the drugs that you're using, the chemicals that are that you're using might be toxic right. for some other parts or other cells. Right. And this is so, the challenge of chemotherapy, this, this for is example. The challenge. You basically, yes. you stress cells in the body completely yes. and so, hope that the cancer cells... So chemotherapy is... Well, chemotherapy, again, it's a broad umbrella. There are right. different types of drugs that sort of attack different parts of the cells, right? Cancer cells. Mm-hmm. So the reason chemotherapy can become problematic is because sometimes, you know, these drugs can try to address fast dividing cells and they will kill all fast dividing cells without caring whether it's actually a tumor cell or a perfectly normal cell, you know. Right. And so... And some fast dividing cells are actually quite useful. Right. So this is why people are now trying to come up with, you know, strategies so that you can target, right, your drugs to particular types of cells, you right. know, those cells, like it will only target those cells and not every other yeah. cell. Ideally, you just want to attack the cancer cells and leave right. everything else unaffected. And here again, you know, the physical properties or the biomechanical properties come in because the thing is, it seems that 
stiffness or other biomechanical properties are a good marker for you know what stage of metastasis okay. the cell is in for at least certain types of cells right. like breast the physical cells. properties of the cells yes, can, can be used can be used to you know determine what stage that you know what stage of cancer that cell is in or at least right. you know whether it's very invasive or not so invasive because people okay. have looked at the stiffness of you know cell nucleus or other parts of the cell and they have found that uniformly the more cancerous a cell is the softer it is okay because they're more squishy more soft the more cancerous they become and i should again say that we use the term cancer as an umbrella for a lot of different cells what i'm talking about the type of cells i'm talking about mostly are breast cancer cells which is one of the most studied right cancer cells right and when we talk about cancer cancer is that broad thing it's not there's not one type of cancer. Right. So when we talk about the war on cancer, it's actually right. the war yes. on a whole bunch of different yes. issues. Yes. You're listening to One Universe at a Time. We're talking to Mo Doss about the challenges and promises of biophysics. So you have another research area that you wanted I to I have talk another about. research area, yes. And that's, again, uh, you know, physics of a certain type of tissue. Previously, I was talking about physics of, you know, tumor tissue, which has mostly cells. And now I want to talk a little bit about maybe another type of tissue, which has very few cells and mostly, you know, uh, collagen fibers and other fibers. And that's the cartilage tissue in our joints, in, you know, your elbows, your mm -hmm. knees and so on. So... The reason I got interested in cartilage is because it's a really, really remarkable material. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a very thin, thin layer in your joints, but it can help you bear more than 10 times your body's weight. Right. And, you know, this tissue, basically, it can't repair or regenerate itself much. So whatever cartilage you had uh, when you became an adult, you will have the same cartilage for the rest of your lifetime. But at the same time, it's going through all these loading cycles, like every day when you run, you jump, you go hiking, you do something, you know, it's going, it's going through all these loading cycles over your right. lifetime, it will undergo like, you know, 100, 200, 300 million loading cycles. So right. it can take a lot of, you know, you like, imagine any material that's yes. flexing over and over and over again, right. it tends so to wear down. So it's very resilient, at the same time very adaptive, because it has to adapt itself to the different kind of activities you're doing. Right. So, and nothing that we humans have made is as adaptive and strong and resilient at the same time. Right. So then you can ask, what are the physical principles underlying the simultaneous toughness and adaptivity of something like cartilage. If you know? we can synthesize this stuff, we'll eat like kings. Right. And also one of the main things that, you know, hinder us from enjoying life as we become older is uh, something like arthritis, right? Which right. is, you know, we don't worry about it now, but in 10 years or 20 years, we'll have to worry about it. Yeah. And when you reach kind of 40, you get those first hints yes. of, yeah, the, yeah. your and time on this planet is limited. <laughs> so, so, and, you know, again, the kind of damage that our knees you know, go, go through, our joints go through in arthritis, the physical basis of that damage, like how do, for example, cracks form in cartilage? How do these cracks propagate, you know? So questions like that. Again, so there are a lot of physics questions mm -hmm. in understanding first the toughness and the adaptivity of cartilage. And then, you know, 
under what kind of conditions you will have failure or fracture or damage in cartilage. Right. Because if you could recreate that, then that would be yes. a huge boon for a lot of people. Yes. Yes. You can engineer tissue, then that helps a lot of people. Because that's why we have things like knee replacements now is because mm -hmm. the cartilage goes away and then you're damaging your knee. And I should also mention both in my cancer work as well as this work on cartilage, I am a theorist. I do a lot of mathematical modeling. I do pen and paper calculations and simulations, but I also work, all of this work is done very closely with experimentalists mm -hmm. who actually go to a lab and test out these theories on actual, you know, experimental samples, so actual cancer cells or actual cartilage tissue. So it's very interdisciplinary, not just yes, in terms yes, of the fields, yes. but also in terms of you know, the, the theoretical versus the experimental. And yes, so, so I am in a physics department. My experimental colleagues are in physics departments, tissue engineering, bioengineering, chemical engineering. So, you know, so it's a very inter interdisciplinary collaboration. So what are you finding about uh, cartilage? The reason cartilage is both strong as well as adaptive is because, you know, at least the top, so cartilage is a tissue, right? So mm -hmm. as you go deeper and deeper in the tissue, the physical properties will change a little bit. So it's the top layer of cartilage that sort of, helps in absorbing shock and also, you know, is more adaptive and mechanosensitive. So we are finding that, especially this top layer, it's very close to a physical phase transition. Mm -hmm. So in physical phase transitions, what happens is you can tune a property by a small amount, and then that will help change another property by a huge amount. When I say right. huge, I mean several orders of magnitude, right? So I think a good example that a lot of people may be familiar with is kind of the cornstarch and water. Right. So it's very fluid, right. but if you move quickly, right. then it, it's almost like a solid. Right. So that way you can change the, you know, concentration, like how much amount of collagen is there in that layer a little bit, and then you can change the total stiffness of cartilage by a huge amount. Okay. And it's not just the concentration of collagen, but you know the collagen fibers are sort of arranged in a network. So the network, this whole tissue has to be stress bearing, right? So we mm -hmm. can change the stress bearing quality of the network by tuning some properties just a little bit. Right, right? so not just changing a little bit, but also the structure, so yes, yes. everything together. Yes, the structure basically changes as you change the concentration. Okay. So in, in, in you know. So the bottom line is this tissue is very close to a physical phase transition. So if you can change something by a small amount, something like the stiffness here will change by a huge amount for the whole tissue. That makes it more mechanosensitive. Mm -hmm. It can sense and you know respond to things easily. Now you can ask, but you know why doesn't it completely fall apart, right? Why doesn't it go from being solid-like to floppy and liquid-like? Right. That's because you know it's also a very multi-scale and multi-component material. So you have a network of some fiber-like you know, material, mm -hmm. and then you have some softer gel-like material, right? So together, these two components, or many components, in fact, you know, there are other smaller constituents, mm -hmm. they make sure that this tissue lives close to a phase transition, but it completely doesn't go through the phase transition right. and reach the other end and fall apart, right? Okay. So, yeah, so you have a composite material and with physical properties at different scales, and then, you know, you also have this proximity to a phase transition. Right. Hence the need for biophysics. Hence the need for biophysics. Physics because as physics, chemistry kind yes. of combined together. Yes. You're listening to One Universe at a Time. We're talking to Mo Doss about biophysics. When we asked you to come on, you were a little hesitant because of kind of the way scientists interact with media and the, and the challenges of that. And, and we kind of joked about, you know, okay, so have you cured cancer yet? And, and this is something that's very important to you, and it's important to many scientists, about how do you 
communicate this clearly at the same time without overselling it. I want the public to be as excited about physics and biophysics as I am, but at the same time, I want to make sure that you know what I'm telling them and what they are getting from you know reading the paper or something is grounded in reality, right? So I don't want, for example, for there to be a headline somewhere in in a, on a blog or a newspaper that my work is curing cancer, right? Because what I'm doing is taking an infinitesimal step that at some point of time in future might help. A little bit, but I still think what the work we are doing is exciting, and this is a challenge to you know, for the public to you know to involve the public, to have them excited, to have them interested, but at the same time, make sure that you know we don't go overboard because if we go overboard, then the danger is that then you know then the public will think that okay, yes, so we are very close to a cure for cancer or a cure right. for such and such disease, and when that then do- doesn't happen within a fixed time frame. Then you know they will get disillusioned, and they would want cuts in the you know science budget for research, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and that can have some very bad consequences. Right. I fear. Well, I think it's one of those things that you, you were talking about the war on cancer over the past four decades or so, and you had said that you know we haven't won the war on cancer yet, but at the same time we have had made huge strides. Right. We've we've under we now understand much more than we did four decades ago. Mm-hmm. And the way we treat things mm-hmm. is very different. Survivability rates mm-hmm. have improved dramatically. Mm-hmm. And yet, you still haven't cured cancer. Right. And so it's it's that we look at the end goal and we don't look at right. the, the path to that end right. goal. Right, right. Yeah, because, and the other thing is, you know, scientific discovery or doing science is fraught with, it's not a linear path. It's a very, like, you know, it's a very convoluted path. Sometimes, you know, you think like you're making a lot of progress, then you take a few steps back, and, you know, then sometimes you go through a different route, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. The public doesn't necessarily know that, right? So often when there are setbacks, when you make some progress, and then there are setbacks, the public thinks that, oh, maybe this... We should just give all this we up. We should just give it all up. Right. So there is that danger. So when we do science, there is always a statistical feature or part to that, right? right. Our results, we are talking about probabilities of different right. events happening. We found it's, that this works 80% of the time. Right. And that's a success in yes. science. We go, 80% of the time, no, I want the answer. Right. What's the truth? So that's another challenge in science to, you know, express it in a way so that the public understands that, you know, when we say something works, we are actually talking in a probabilistic way. And we are not saying right. that, you know, this will work 100% of the time under every single circumstance. Right. It seems like part of the challenge is that in the way people perceive science, it's always the great discovery that changes everything. And right. you have, you know, Newton came along and discovered the laws of physics, and then right. everybody immediately accepted that. And, and even then it wasn't true. No, even then it wasn't true. There were a lot of steps that led to that. People think of science as flashes of brilliance. But then right. before those flashes of brilliance, there were a lot of sparks, a lot of hard work that led to that, right? I've told my students sometimes that a lot of science is pounding your head against the wall, frustrated because you can't understand this. And then when you finally do find some glimmer of truth, mm-hmm. you pound your head against the wall because it was so obvious. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, no, that, that is right very there. true. Yeah. Society has kind of changed in the sense of social media and, and how we interact with the public. We're, we're kind of shifted away from the, the supposed ivory tower right. where other people communicate science for us. Right. Uh, do you think it's more important for scientists to actually now get out there and, and be communicators as well as scientists? Yeah, so I think I think it's actually very important that scientists, you know, connect with people directly and talk about their science directly because who 
better to talk about their work than people who are doing the work, right? right. That way, they can, you know, basically cut through the, like sometimes I get worried by, you know, clickbait titles on scientific <laughs> research, you know, in the media, which says that, oh, such and such person is the next Einstein, right. or this is the, you know, most important discovery in the past century or in the current century. Ten and year it old turns genius out it's not. cures cancer. Like, yeah, so, but one way to deal with this is for scientists to talk to people directly about their research, you know. So mm -hmm. I definitely think that's important. The other thing that I think is important and is going to happen more and more, you know, as everything, you know, as, you know, people become more uh, engaged with, you know, finding information online is for scientific research or scientific method methodologies or scientific data to become open right. source right. so that citizen scientists can then access that and then maybe even test some of our codes or right. our analysis. And that's a, that's a big push in terms of open science as yes. you see yes. now more open data, more arguments to say that government funded research, the, the data needs to be out there because yes. the taxpayers are paid for In fact, students who do research with me, some of my students have put their codes in an open source platform, the GitHub, right. so that other people can also access their codes and test what they're doing. Right, I know we've had that in astronomy, for example, where NASA puts all of its data in the public domain. Mm -hmm. So anyone can go and analyze whatever they want. Right. And I know biology areas are starting to do that. There's some still challenges there. Right, right. But, but yeah, that's, it sounds like we're kind of radically changing from mm -hmm. a, a passive audience for the general public to be a passive audience to really right. be more active participators. And people are also getting into or trying to, you know, some of my friends are also trying to crowdfund some of their scientific projects. So right. not just look for funding from, you know, big foundations or Go on the to Kickstarter, I need, a, I need a research program. <laughs> yeah, well, not Kickstarter, there are scientific versions of right, that. Right, right. But you know, why not? You know, that also involves the public in some ways. You know? Right. Right, it gives them more of a direct connection yes. to, to support a specific area of research that yes, they like. Yes, if they're passionate about a certain kind of research, you know, and right. that research doesn't take a lot of money, but a small amount of money, and needs to be done now, then, you know, if you crowdfund it, you might, like, you might have access to that funding more quickly than you'll have through a foundation. Right. Or and a, and we, in some ways, we've done that indirectly. I mean, we pay taxes, and then it's decided through right. the government, or there are foundations right. that people contribute to, right. and they decide. So mm -hmm. now, because of social media, we can say, well, you should fund MoDOS. And so that's, you know, go to give but to I the MoDOS fund, and, and everyone would like this. You've been listening to One Universe at a Time. We've been talking with Dr. Momita Das, Assistant Professor of Physics at the Rochester Institute of Technology, about biophysics. Our program is produced by Mark Gillespie at the Rochester Institute of Technology with support from the RIT College of Science. Thanks for listening to One Universe at a Time.